0: But um this morning we're going to we're continuing our um, sermon series working through the book of Leviticus and the heart behind this really as I 've shared the past few weeks, is that Easter is this moment where Jesus dies on the cross and is resurrected, and we encounter his love and its grace and his fullness and then the kind of the question is after Easter like, okay, what does it mean now to live? as a people of the resurrection what do we do how do we live in light of what jesus did in easter and believing that actually the book of leviticus has something to say of what it means to be a holy people called to be holy before god that leviticus for most of us is probably a book we avoid stay away from that it's can seem repetitive can seem challenging it can seem even offensive but actually there's something in there when you place it in its context when you take a big picture of how it works within the body of scripture it's got something to say to us so this morning we're going to be reading from Leviticus 16 verses 20 to 34 and I was it's quite a long passage and my voice has been going and it almost went when I read this in the nine so I've invited my friend Jenny to read the passage for us this morning. So Hang on. <laughs> from leviticus chapter 16 20 20 to 34
1: you only just asked me to do this sorry yeah, I'm in the right place. Okay, cool. uh, when aaron has finished making atonement for the most holy place the tent of meeting and the altar he shall bring forward the live goat he is to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the israelites all their sins and put them on the goat's head. He shall send the goat away into the wilderness in the care of someone appointed for the task. The goat will carry on itself all their sins to a remote place, and the man shall release it into the wilderness. Then Aaron is to go into the tent of meeting and take off the linen garments he put on before he entered the most holy place. (laughs) And he is to leave them there. He shall bathe himself with water in the sanctuary area and put on his regular garments. Then he shall come out and sacrifice the burnt offering for himself and the burnt offering for the people to make atonement for himself and for the people. He shall also burn the fat of the sin offering on the altar. The man who releases the goat as a scapegoat must wash his clothes and bathe himself with water. Afterward he may come into the camp. The bull and the goat for the sin offerings, whose blood was brought into the most holy place to make atonement, must be taken outside the camp. Their hides, flesh, and anti-stones are to be burned up. The man who burns them must wash his clothes and bathe himself with water. Afterward, he may come into the camp. This is to be a lasting ordinance for you. On the tenth day of the seventh month, you must deny yourselves and not do any work, whether native-born or a foreigner residing among you. Because on this day atonement will be made for you to cleanse you, then before the Lord you will be clean from all your sins. Is
0: that it? Keep going. For oh. thirty-four. Oh,
1: thirty-four. Sorry. It is a day of Sabbath rest, and you must deny yourselves. It is a lasting ordinance. The priest who is anointed and ordained to succeed his father as high priest is to make atonement. He is to put on the sacred linen garments and make atonement for the most holy place. For the tent of meeting and the altar, and for the priests and all members of the community. This is to be a lasting ordinance for you. Atonement is to be made once a year for all the sins of the Israelites. And it was done as the Lord commanded Moses.
0: This is the word of God for the people of God. Thank you. Thanks, Jim. So this morning we're reading from Leviticus chapter sixteen which is really a chapter focused around this Day of Atonement. And in previous weeks I've talked about where the book of Leviticus sits within Scripture, that Scripture starts with these five books, the Torah, the Pentateuch, the law. And the, the rest of the Old Testament is kind of the outworking of the law, that you get the history of the Israelites trying to live it out, you get the pro- prophets calling people back to the law. But this is kind of the key part to understanding what it the Old Testament is, what it mean, meant for the Israelites to be the people of God. And that it starts with a story in Genesis of creation, that God creates the world and then within it he creates the Garden of Eden. This image of creation and its fullness at its best is God dwelling with his people. But from that story we know that it goes pretty badly and they get sent out of the garden and they end up falling, ending up in the depths in Egypt as slaves. And from there, that God saves them out of Egypt, pulls them through the desert to Mount Sinai, where they spend a year being formed by God into his people. That while they've been saved out of Egypt, God needed to do some work, continued work to form them as his people, because they've been used to lives as as slaves. And Leviticus is this period where they spend a year being formed that actually within the five books of the law, Leviticus is kind of the central piece, that if you want to understand the Pentateuch and what it means for the people of God, read Leviticus. And actually, within Leviticus, there's kind of a similar structure of the opening verses and the closing verses mirror each other, and it kind of does the same pattern, where actually, if you're wanting to understand the book of Leviticus, the key that it's all pointing towards is the central chapter, chapter 16, this Day of Atonement. So within the whole scheme of the Old Testament, if the law's the most, kind of the key text to read, then within the law, the key text to read is Leviticus, and then with Leviticus, it's this one chapter on the Day of Atonement. If you want to understand what it means to be the people of God, read Leviticus 16. This will be like the best summary. This is the key moment. And this is our text for this morning. And I thought as I started, actually, it might be helpful to give my references. Who, when I've been researching, as I've been reading about this, there's been a lot of commentaries and books that I've been reading. And there's great books around, there's a lot of really good commentaries that work through Leviticus verse by verse. This is what the ancient Hebrew meant. This is what it might mean for us now, how it's been translated, that work through verse by verse. I recommend many commentaries that do that for you, but there's been a couple that have been key to get this bigger sense of like, how do we interpret the whole piece? So if you want to bring up these books, the first one that's actually shaped it is this book by Michael Morales, Who Shall Ascend the Mountain of the Lord, a biblical theology of the book of Leviticus. So that has been fantastic. But what I'd recommend for you, if you've ever want to read some of the books, of the, I don't any books, but particularly if there's a book that you avoid in the Bible, this one on the right is fantastic. It's not that big. It's how to read the Bible book by book. And you don't need to read just like, okay, I'm reading Leviticus, I'll turn to the Leviticus chapter. I'm reading James, I'll read to the James chapter. And it's a great book where it's, so Gordon, particularly Gordon Fee is a, highly, highly, like, top-of-the-line theologian, biblical scholar. But he's also a Pentecostal. So he has this great element. He knows the depth of the Bible thought, but he also has this, like, how does this apply to the people of God now? How do we work it out in a faithful way? Um, so if you're, And they also do another book, How to Read the Bible, for all it's worth. So, if you're ever interested in how to read difficult books in the Bible, I'd recommend the one on the right. But as we turn back to our passage, as we turn back to the book of Leviticus, we've got this day of atonement. This day that, for Jews even now, this is like the key day in their year Yom Kippur it's kind of known as the day or the Sabbath of Sabbaths. Like this is the most important day in their calendar. Every other day kind of fails in comparison. That if in the story of creation we see it kind of set up as this temple where God's, God could dwell with his creatures. This was the day where they could get into the heart of the temple. Like really where God was. There's, in the book of Exodus, it describes what this temple looks like. And some people have kind of done various imagery. So I've got an image of what this temple, this tabernacle that they've made is like. And this is it here. So you've got this fence around the outside. You've got this tabernacle in the middle. And if you can see the red, there's kind of this curtain that allows, through the curtain, you're allowed into the holy of holies. This is where the arkin of the covenant lies. This is like, the place where God dwells and the ark of the covenant where the great commandments are kept has a lid and the lid is called the place of mercy the mercy seat or the place of atonement and once a year on the day of atonement the high priest would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat on the atonement seat and wash the israelite people of their sins that in the first week there was a lot of these laws around like what do you do when you need forgiveness for sins you've committed that you don't know about. And it kind of gives these like, through the year you've got these little sacrifices, little acts of worship you can do to God to say, actually, I've mucked up, I've stuffed up, I want to turn back to you. But the idea with this day of atonement is that it deals with issues of forgiveness. But as one theologian actually read and said, you deal with your sin through the year But the Day of Atonement, you deal with the stains of your sins. Like any remnants, any memories, anything there is dealt with on this day. That this ceremony, this day, is the closest encounter with God possible. That all year, you kind of build up as a nation, your sins. You just kind of get polluted, get messy, get mucky. And on this day, they're healed, they're restored. You're fixed. And in the book of Leviticus, this is chapter 16, and chapter 10, which is set in the same day, you get the story of, okay, we've got this tabernacle that we've built, we're looking back to Eden, we get this new Eden memory where we get to be present with God again, like this is is what we've wanted. And we get this tragic story where Aaron, the priest, his sons just muck it up. They mess it up, they defile the the tabernacle and end up, because they die in it, which if you hear last week, death is the furthest thing from what it means to be with God. They not just defiled the temple and dying it, they really defiled it. And in the midst of that, we get this moment where God says, this is the day where I'm going to make all things right. I'm going to make you clean. And the story from our passage of a scapegoat. For many of us, we're probably familiar with this phrase of what a scapegoat is. And this is where it comes from. This passage that what do we do with the sins, the failures, the mistakes of a community, of a nation of individuals? What do we do with them? How do we get back to a restored place with God? And as we look out throughout history, this is a pretty common like question and way of dealing with it, this idea of a scapegoat that we like Like it talks about in the passage, there's this goat that you literally speak everything bad you've done over this goat and then you send it out into the wilderness, out into the place of death so that your sins go and die. And this is a concept that actually I think most cultures, most individuals kind of try and do maybe in less successful ways. Like even as we think back of the early Christians, the Roman Empire, failing empire, like, serious dysfunction, and it's, they just haven't done this well, and they need a reason, need a scapegoat, need something to be like, it's not us, like, something else must have caused this, and they put it on the Christians. The Christians are persecuted. And through the centuries, you get these kind of groups often in, nat- in nations and communities who the sins, the failures, the mistakes get put on as the scapegoat of, like, it must be someone's fault. We'll put it on them, send them out, and then we'll be absolved and healed. For centuries, Jews have been given this. Wherever they've been in countries, they are often attributed this. We'll put the sins, the failures of our nation on this people group. Like World War II and what was done under Nazism wasn't a new thing. That had been done for centuries throughout Europe. Even during the Black Plague, That was a tribute, it must have been the Jews. So Jews throughout hundreds of communities in Europe were sent out because they must have been their fault. It must have been their fault. People with disabilities have been seen as that there there must be something with them that's caused us to fail. Actually, if you look through human history, a lot of the blame's been put on women. It's their fault. They're the ones we're going to put as a nation, as a people group, we'll put the blame on them. Immigrants or foreigners, they're the ones our country is not succeeding, not doing what we want, it's the reason we're failing. Immigrants. That when governments, when systems fail, there needs to be a scapegoat. And we often will pick a group or an individual to place it on. Because there's this, we need to deal with what's happened, who we are and the easiest way to do it is to place it on another group and even when these systems can actually fail there's still this like how do we grapple with this like in Germany and the Soviet Union and systems throughout Southeast Asia that in the 20th century when they failed it was like who do we blame for this when everyone's kind of complicit we all were involved and the default in most systems, which there's some validity to it, is that you place it on a small group of the leaders. At least in the, in the long term, they have response. To it. it was those like 10 people who led us, the rest of us are good. Like there's this funny thing, you know, if you look through history, there's this funny trend you get where after an empire falls, other system falls that's corrupt and evil, they realize like, oh, we were all involved in this. This is all of our faults. And what happens is they go through all the systems of people in any kind of roles and like, mate, the teachers, they were like, they were, like, they were involved in this. They were raising our kids up into worldviews and ways of thinking that were toxic. And they fire all the teachers. All the government organizations, it's like, man, they were complicit in this. We gotta let them go. We got a fresh start. We gotta do that. And then you see this thing like, it might be three months, it might be six months, it might be a year later. All the countries realize like, oh man, like, the teachers like, were involved in this. They were complicit, but they're also kind of the only ones who know how to teach children. So they all get brought back in. All the government officials who mucked it up, who stuffed it up, it's like, well, they're kind of the only ones who know how like, the computer software works to do all this stuff. <laughs> so we just got to rehire them. And it kind of just, this: we put it on the, this small group of leaders or this other group, and everyone else who is complicit just kind of gets to enter back into the system and that's just at a corporate or collective level, I think individually as well, so I think like it can be so easy when those feelings of failure and our own insecurities, our own worries come up to place it externally, like and it comes out in anger and frustration at others, like, "Oh, they're the ones they mucked up, it. it's not me like and one actually recommendation Sydney and I got when we first got married, um, is to not pick an actual person, but a hypothetical, that when we're having a conflict, a helpful thing could be like, man, Sharon just never washes the dishes around this place, like, and having an, like, but it's still a scapegoat, it's like, rather than being like, one of us is failing, we come up with this, like, external But I think we do that with actual people, like, oh, this team's not working, this thing's not working. Like, it must, like, I'm not gonna take responsibility, so it must be your or their fault. And there can be this thing of like, when stuff goes wrong, when stuff doesn't seem right, who do we, how do we deal with our own failures, our own missing the point? How do we not just blame it on others? And I think the biblical answer is this thing of atonement, that if sin is something of this rebellion, this infidelity, this disloyalty, this dirtiness, wandering from God, how do we deal with that? How do we deal with when we feel that sense of, man, we've just been rebellious to God or to others, this sense of like something's just not right? And I think the biblical answer is atonement. And atonement's this funny word, um, that comes up in scripture and in theology. And I think at its essence, it's about a restoration of relationship. That if we understand God, our God, as a triune God, as a God who's both three and one, there's a sense of something of the Trinity speaks to like our God is deeply relational. To be both one and three that as you read through particularly john's gospel it's always like the father who is with the son who is with the spirit who is with the son who is with the father and it is just this constant like you almost never get one without the other two or one without another one that god is deeply relational and out of that he in genesis he created this deeply relational god created created us as his image And then called us not to just be one of us living as his image, but called our people to live as his image bearers together and go out into the world. And the tragedy is those relationships are broken. That our relationship with God can be severed. Which then, like, we lose all sense of who we are as his image bearers which in turn just breaks down our relationships with each other and we just have a dysfunctional relationship with the world around us. And the picture of atonement is God saying, I want to restore those relationships. Firstly, with you and God, but then with your sense of self, your sense of identity as his child, your sense of relationship with other image bearers and into the world. And the way he does it, links back to this passage and if you want to bring up the passage again from verse 20 when Aaron had finished making atonement for the most holy place that he cleansed this place that there was a cleansing of the holy of holies the tent of meeting in the altar he shall bring forward the live goat he is to lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites all their sins to put them on the goat's head He shall send the goat away into the wilderness in the care of someone appointed for the task. The goat will carry on itself all their sins to a remote place and the man shall release it into the wilderness. That all the brokenness of our relationships in the story they put on the goat once a year and send it out and they're restored. And the prophets pick something of this up of like, for the Israelites, there was this goat once a year, but... Isaiah particularly picks up, this isn't going to be a goad long term. This is going to be a person who is going to take up this role of holding, of bearing our mistakes, our failures, our suffering. And in Isaiah Isaiah chapter 53 verses 3 to 6, we get these verses. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, the iniquity of all. That this person that Isaiah speaks of will bear that pain, that dysfunction, that loss, that broken relationships will be borne by one person. And we know the person that speaks of is Jesus. That Jesus comes as that person who can say that the greatest thing a friend can do is lay down life for his friends not just lay down his life, but bear the weight of all of our failings. And we get this beautiful picture because as we think back to this image of this temple, where it's like you progressively get closer to God until you get to this moment of the holy of holies that once a year it was purified so that God could come and be with his people and only the high priest was allowed in there. This was the moment on the day of atonement where that place was most holy and god's presence was there and we get this moment with jesus where he serves this role as this scapegoat as a sacrifice and that curtain is torn that that moment that the people of god could only access once every year that needed this whole process jesus at easter tears that curtain and access into the holy of holies, access into the holiness of God is accessible through Christ. That atonement, this restored relationship with God is possible in and through Christ. We're able to be in the presence of God because of what Jesus has done for us. That he's restored us, He has made us whole like for the Israelite people. They only got this one moment a year and only one person could go in and do it. And yet, as his called people post-Easter, we get to participate in this. That where maybe we have patterns of scapegoating in our lives, saying, not owning up to the stuff that's going on, the pain, the struggle, stuff we've done, but stuff that's been done to us. And we scapegoat it out. Post-Easter, there's a solution. We don't have to scapegoat out to other people. Jesus says, I've come and I've dealt and I'm wanting to continue to deal with that. If you're feeling distant from God, from yourself, from friends, from the world, God says, I've made a way, I've made an atonement, I've made a way to be restored in those relationships. And atonement's one of these funny concepts where it's, There's a lot of books written on atonement, trying to grasp, and over centuries, like, what is this thing of atonement? What does it mean to be restored to Jesus? And as we look at Scripture, actually, Jesus doesn't really offer a theory of what it means to be restored to him. He doesn't offer a model, or even really metaphors. What he does offer is a meal. That the way he explains what he has done as he breaks bread with his friends and drinks wine with his friends. So I want to invite the band up and the ushers up this morning. And so as we reflect on what it means to be the people of God, what it means to be his called people, holy people, how does he invite us into that holiness, into his presence? He invites us to participate in communion. So this morning, before we receive communion, I just want to pause for a couple of of minutes for us to reflect, to sit before God, let His Spirit come, and if there's stuff in you that you're like, actually, God, I want to bring this before the altar this morning. Maybe there's things that you've been scapegoating to other people, Maybe there's things where you've been the scapegoat for your family, for your friends, for your community. That God wants to say, come and bring that to the table this morning. Bring that to me, put that on me. So Please, yeah. Sit in silence for a couple of minutes. on the night that Jesus was portrayed he gathered around his friends, his disciples his community and during the meal he broke bread he said this is my body which is broken for you, do this in remembrance of me and later in the meal he took a cup of wine and he said This is the blood of the new covenant. This is the sacrifice for the new relationship you have with me. Every time that you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you remember my death until I come again. Lord God, as we receive communion this morning, may we know you as the God who bears the weight who holds the hard stuff, the struggles, the failures, the pains in our lives, Lord. Lord, you are that scapegoat. You are that sacrifice. Lord, if there's anyone here who's putting stuff on other people on the externals Lord I pray that they this morning would be able to put that on the only place that can hold that that is you Lord if there's people here this morning that they have been the place where the sins of a family and a community have been placed Lord this morning may they be able to offload that onto you Lord this morning we come and receive your body and your blood May we be healed and be holy before you, Lord God. In your name, amen. Well, thanks for listening. We hope this teaching has served you well and that you've sensed something of God's voice speaking to you. If there's any way that we can help or pray for you, support you in any way, we'd love to be able to do that. You can find out our contact info on our website at thewellnz.org or flick us an email at support at thewellnz.org. God bless you. We look forward to hearing from you soon.